Coming up on Studios America, the issue of gun control is a hot ticket item once again, which means the left is going to be pushing the limits of the Constitution as far as they can get to get their agenda across. I will speak with Amy Swear of the Heritage Foundation about the testimony she gave to Congress on this issue just over a week ago. And we now have word of a ninth accuser against Andrew Cuomo for sexually inappropriate behavior. He is battling against Deshaun Watson, who will come out victorious. This one kind of came with an extra side of gross, a picture of the incident in question. We'll dive into all of that for better or for worse. Hello and welcome back to another great week of Stew Does America, which means another great chance to head over to my Instagram page at Stew Does America and give me a follow if you don't mind. We get exclusive content. The link in the bio will take you to all the different ways you can watch and share this stupid show. And if you like the sound of that, how about a special discount on a Blaze TV subscription? Head to blazetv.com slash stew and enter the promo code stew because that's how they know you like this stupid show and you'll save 10 bucks. The highly publicized and politicized trial of the officer accused of murdering George Floyd begins today. And regardless of the outcome, I think we're all in for a very bumpy ride. So let's do the George Floyd trial. Stew does America. Today in Minnesota, the trial of Officer Derek Chauvin has begun over the death of George Floyd. For some reason, people are boarding up their windows all around the city. There are business closures, and most Minneapolis residents have boarded a one-way spacecraft to Mars, where they will eventually need to form a new society from scratch while growing potatoes using their own waste as fertilizer. Hmm, you know, it's just one of those things. That doesn't sound like fun, but it's going to be a hell of a lot better than being in Minneapolis for the next few months. Now, I would not consider myself an expert in Minnesota criminal law, but as I've discussed previously, what I saw on the George Floyd tape looked like murder to me. It certainly looked like a crime of some sort, and I'm about the most pro-police person in America. That being said, convicting someone because of the opinion of some idiot on YouTube who doesn't know the law very well is not a well-designed justice system, even if the guy on YouTube happens to be devastatingly handsome and also a tad overweight. The law is the law. The officer charged with murder in this case deserves his right to trial, and that trial should be fair to the officer, even if he is a murderer, and even if he isn't as devastatingly handsome as the host of this particular program. But there's something else going on here. City after city burned to the ground, despite the fact that this officer was charged with murder. We were told by the media that it was unfair to judge the actions of the rioters because we needed to understand the context of the situation. The understated racist implications of these warnings were clear. The basic premise was, Black people have been wronged in this country, so you can't expect anything less than mass chaos. You can't expect them to follow the law in response. You have to expect that that Wendy's is going to be lit on fire. Well, I have a much higher opinion of our fellow African-American citizens than a lot of the media apparently does. This country, the greatest on earth, has a justice system that is imperfect, sure but it's the best thing we have as human beings, and the process is vitally important. In the lead up to the trial, we keep hearing a version of the idea that it's, it's not this officer who is on trial, it's racism as a whole. We hear it from the victim's attorney. Today, 
starts a landmark trial that will be a referendum on how far America has come in its quest for equality and justice for all. Okay, we heard it from Black Lives Matter. Quote, as we near the beginning of Derek Chauvin's murder trial, we need to understand that bigotry, white supremacy, and complacency are also on trial. We hear it from the activists on the ground. We can't act like this is George Floyd is an isolated issue because it's not. It's too many bodies before George Floyd that led up to George Floyd. This insistence that this trial is about something bigger than this trial is a massive problem in a couple of different ways. Number one, it demeans the life of George Floyd. Just like the officer deserves a fair trial, George Floyd deserves a proper investigation and trial so that justice can be served. To act like Floyd's life isn't of enough importance to justify our attention and outrage is minimizing the value of George Floyd's life. In short, it's an argument that individual black lives do not matter. Well, I believe that they do. Over and over again, we hear this argument. We can't act like this is an isolated incident. And it's presented as, as if it's an argument for justice. But acting like this is an, is an isolated incident is precisely what our system of justice demands. Convicting this officer based on your perceptions of a system of racially motivated police violence is not only inaccurate in a million ways, but it is also completely against the law. The job of a trial like this is to show if this one officer is guilty of this one crime. If you convict him based on your wild-eyed critiques of the police or the system or America, you are abandoning the absolute core of our justice system. Each man, as an individual, has a right to defend himself based on the merits of his own circumstance. He should not be acquitted or convicted based on what you felt about Eric Garner or Trayvon Martin or Michael Brown. And your insistence of putting George Floyd into a collection of names minimizes his rights as an individual. And that's seemingly the plan. To the left, to the media, to Black Lives Matter, an individual life means nothing. What matters is the larger narrative, a narrative that is entirely built on collectivism. This isn't an officer that may have committed a crime against a citizen. It's a white man committing a crime against a black man. It's a group against another group. It's a skin color versus another skin color. And you know what? There is a word for seeing the world through a prism of skin color and then forming your opinions based on race. It's called racism. You should never, ever, Make any decision in your entire life based on someone's skin color for any reason ever. This shouldn't be hard. And it's important to note when this trial isn't about racism, as the media and activists have been demanding, regular people are going to get pissed off. But as legal experts will tell you, if you listen, quote, when someone says racism is on trial, white supremacy is on trial, I understand why they say that, and metaphorically, I agree with them. But none of that is going to be discussed at the trial at all, said Abigail Sarah, who sits on the Minneapolis Police Con Conduct Oversight Commission. Got that? None of this is even going to be discussed in the trial. 
Now, I am not as optimistic that the law will be followed as Miss Sarah, but that's certainly how all of this is supposed to work, and for good reason. And you know what? When it doesn't work that way, you get terrible results. If you want to see this flawed way of thinking in action, allow me to remind you of a woman named Bess. Once upon a time, Bess decided to put racism on trial rather than dealing with the case in front of her. Here's how that all turned out. Do you think that there are members of the jury that voted to acquit OJ because of Rodney King? Yes. You do? Yes. How many of you think felt that way? Oh, probably 90% of us. 90%? Did you feel that way? Yes. That was payback? Uh-huh. You think that's right? Oh, you think that's right? Let me help you out with that one. No, absolutely not. The O.J. Simpson verdict wasn't about justice. It was about payback. And that's according to one of the jurors who cast the vote. It's not right. And it leads to a massive miscarriage of justice. In this case, that both whites and blacks look back at in horror. Ah, working together, ebony and ivory. So as the George Floyd trial begins against Derek Chauvin, we need to remember that this is not about revenge. True justice can only be doled out dispassionately with a sober and complete understanding of the law and the facts. Let's hear the evidence and then make a rational decision on the merits of the case. We need to learn, then protest. First learn, second protest, if the facts demand it. Learn then protest. The order is important. And no matter what happens, it's not an excuse to go burn down a freaking Wendy's. Let's see where the facts take us. And then let's all agree to leave the home of the Baconator out of it. Because with the exception of a few million pigs and cows and perhaps a few heart attack victims, Wendy's didn't murder anyone. Justice is supposed to be blind, not dumb. I'm happy to welcome back to the program Amy Swearer. She's an expert on the Second Amendment as well as a legal fellow for the Heritage Foundation. Amy, thanks for coming back on the program. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, You were on a much bigger stage uh, recently as you testified in front of Congress about uh, the various gun control measures that seem to be coming our way. before we get into all the details on it, is this, am I correct in my perception that, you know, there's this constant sort of thing that Democrats do, uh, you know, it's, it goes back to this never let a crisis go to waste. It seems like they just want to take advantage of these terrible tragedies by pushing their agenda through. Yeah, though I, I will say, you know, in, in this case with some of the ones that just got passed through the House, I, it was just a bit of timing that we had the tragedy in, in Boulder, I, I believe either the day before or within 48 hours of the hearings for those bills in the Senate. Mm. 
Um, but you even saw in those hearings in the Senate, um, you know, having sat through all four, four and a half hours of it, um, it was the case even within those hearings uh, that there was a lot of talking about Boulder, even though one at the time we didn't know a whole lot. Uh, it had just happened the day before. There wasn't a lot of information. Um, and, and then it actually turns out that uh, later in the day and in the days following, what we did find out was none of the bills we were talking about would have mattered in any way, shape or form. Mm. Um, so it was sort of this other side of, you know, this very weird aspect of talking a about a tragedy that none of these bills would have prevented. Yeah, I think it's, it's one of the most amazing things that happens after each one of these things, because as you point out, this in this particular case, this was ongoing anyway, kind of one of their first you know, mm -hmm. promised bills to push through. But typically what happens in these cases is the, they have an opportunity to reverse engineer the policy to the previous crime that they say is ins inspiring it, and they still can't find a law that would actually stop the shooting. I mean, it really is a, a, a massive uh, a failure, and I think a, a real sign that these laws, it's hard to legislate this out of existence. Well, it's, it's not only hard to legislate this out of existence, but I think part of the problem with the political rhetoric and sort of the, the modern American political mindset is that we, for reasons of politics, try to stick to easy sounding talking points, regardless of whether or not those talking points have anything to do with good policy, with actually addressing the problems. Because it turns out when you do the work, and look at what the underlying problems are, they're much harder to address than say, you know, it passing an easy sounding law about quote unquote assault weapons. Um, you know, it, it takes a lot more effort and a lot more nuance and, and a lot more uh, just thought put into it. Um, but unfortunately that's not how politics works. Um, and it really cuts off a lot of opportunities to talk about how we could actually address some of these problems. Well, I want to get to some of those here in a second, but you, you point out that a lot of this goes to uh, talking points and bumper sticker type slogans. So let me give you a couple of those because I, you know, as a, I, I grew up in Connecticut, I was not a particularly uh, big, we were not a big gun family. I now live in Texas where I, I think it's required by law. And uh, it, it's interesting though, talking to people who are not big fans of guns or some people who actually like uh, the Second Amendment and, and like firearms generally, they, they constantly mention the background check thing. And that's what the, the Democrats uh, uh, seem to uh, approach uh, all, you know, the public with all the time. Why not have universal background checks? Well, why is that a bad idea? Well, so let's start with one of the things that I think is most important here. What is the actual law right now? Because people talk about universal background checks. They hear that and they're like, oh, my goodness, are, are people just all over buying guns from a vending machine without a background check? <laughs> um, so it's already the case that most gun sales that we think of uh, when we talk about gun sales, you know, going to a gun store, um, uh, allegedly buying guns over the Internet, whenever you buy something over the, the Internet, um, you can't just have a gun shipped to your door. Um, whenever you buy across state lines, whether you're buying at a gun show, it doesn't matter if it is a federal, federally licensed firearm, or, sorry, excuse me, a federal firearms licensee who is in the business of selling guns for profit, that requires a background check. The end. Mm. Uh, the only thing that we're talking about realistically is this idea of what I would call publicly advertised private sales. Um, so these have to be conducted in person and between residents of the same state. Um, so things like arms list, uh, Craigslist gun sales, where you're just trying to find a buyer you've never met before. Um, now, even with that, if you know or have reason to suspect that the person is prohibited, 
it's still a crime to sell to them. Um, so, so there, you know, it, it's not just um, this sort of blank slate to sell to whoever you want within your own state. And again, part of the reason for this is I, as an ordinary private citizen, can't just call up the FBI to run a background check on another person. Right. I have to go through and pay a third party to do that. Um, so that's really what we're talking about is this very limited aspect of where right now we don't have to have uh, a background check conducted for you know fairly legitimate reasons. And I think it's worth addressing that, at least in, in theory, but the problem is when you look at universal background check bills in practice, they're not limited to just addressing that problem. They go so far overbroad to basically criminalize any temporary private low risk transfer between people who you know are not prohibited. Um, and even in some cases, it would make it more difficult to make to, to take life saving measures. Um, for example, to, to transfer your guns if you're not in a good mental state, to transfer that to a friend or a family member. Um, you know, without having to traipse down to a gun store, it, it just gets in the way of these common sense measures because it's not n narrowly tailored at the real problem. Hmm. Yeah, cause, I mean, I think, you know, I'm of the sort of opinion that the Second Amendment has already been infringed in many, many ways. So I I'm sort of at the point of work. I don't want to give one inch in any direction on this one. Um, so maybe I'm not the right person to ask. But is there a is there a an argument to be made that because we're talking about a small minority of cases that almost are never responsible for these crimes, I mean, should should the, the right give ground on this and just say, yeah, you know what, we'll cover those sales just so you'll stop talking about it? Well, I, I think yes and no. Um, so on the one hand, you are right. Uh, these publicly advertised private sales, we know that this is not a major way in which criminals are getting their guns. Um, it's certainly not a way in which would-be mass shooters are getting their guns. In fact, um, I'm only aware of one mass shooting in recent history that might, uh, and that's the key word, might have been um, prevented or at least delayed uh, because it went through a, a private sale and the person may have been prohibited. Um, but other than that, the, largely people who are already prohibited are getting their guns from black market sales. Um, when they are going through gun stores, it's because they can pass a background check, presumably. Um, so th this isn't, again, really addressing ways that criminals get their guns. Now, there is this argument that says, well, this is a way that they could plausibly get their guns. It perhaps makes sense to look at addressing it. And I think the only way that that argument makes sense is if it's done in a way that doesn't uh, go beyond that, that it doesn't, for example, punish other types of low risk sales. Um, and that also, you know, within this, there's room for talking about, do we exempt concealed carry permit holders or in states like Illinois, where you need a, a permit to just own a gun? Presumably, uh, you know, by definition, if you have that permit, you're a law abiding citizen, you pass a background check. Um, so I think there's ways of, you know, give and take within that limited parameter, again, of publicly advertised private sales to strangers. Um, but as soon as we start getting beyond that um, and increasing burdens beyond the sort of, you know, recognition that it's a low reward endeavor, uh, I mean, you're, you're right in suggesting that at a certain point it stops being worth even having that conversation if the other side isn't willing to have it as well. Mm. Yeah, it, it really is. And I think it, we've gone to that point and beyond it, it seems like every single time this comes up, we, we go a little bit further. Um, another thing that I hear a lot from people, especially people who don't ever use firearms, uh, mm -hmm. is this idea that 
there's no reason for someone to have an assault rifle. There's no reason for someone to have an AR-15. These are big, scary guns. They should be in, 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 in war movies, not in my cul-de-sac. Uh, how do you explain that to people who maybe aren't familiar with these? Well, so I, I think, again, it starts with explaining to people what is or is not an assault weapon, because that, I, I think, in and of itself, that definition shows just how absurd this is. Hmm. So when states have undertaken to define assault weapons, it's not based on any meaningful measure of, um, you know, things like caliber. It's not rate of fire. These are all semi-automatic weapons. Um, it, it's not things like muzzle velocity that might impact, you know, some vague definition of stopping power. Um you know, even if those were relevant, and again, the whole point is if, if I'm in a position where my life is on the line, I, of course, want a gun that is going to stop that person. I, you know, I, I don't want a less lethal means of force there. Uh, but even, even if that's what we're talking about, that's not what an assault weapon is. It's largely defined by things that actually make it easier for me as you know, just your average everyday civilian to fire that gun accurately. Things like pistol grips, things like collapsing stocks, barrel shrouds, forward grips. These are simply things that make that gun easier for me to shoot accurately. Which again, you know, if I'm a law-abiding citizen, that's what we want. We don't want law-abiding citizens doing lawful things, having it harder for them to hit their target. That's that that's sort of defeats the purpose. Um, so that's, yeah, I think part of it is just explaining to people that assault weapon is not a term that has any real meaning and breaking that down for them. Yeah, I think it was one of your earlier testimonies of uh, 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 times uh, testifying in front of Congress where you mentioned a story about your mom, uh, which which you did admit was a little embarrassing. But can you can you kind of walk people through this? Because I think if, sure. if you're not in this yeah. world normally and you don't fire weapons, you don't understand these things. Yeah. And this is actually why I would encourage uh, people to to take their their friends to the range who haven't had the opportunity, um, you know, to interact with firearms a lot because it makes more sense once you're using them. Mm. Why would anyone want an assault weapon? Um, you know, so I, I took my mom to the range. I think it was actually her Christmas gift, um, and she didn't grow up with firearms. This is her first time ever hand handling a gun, um, so I gave her a handgun. And um, she gave me permission to tell this to Congress. So presumably, you know, I, I have permission to repeat it. <laughs> um, like most people firing a handgun for the first time, she she was bad. Um, you know, couldn't hit the broad side of a barn at 10 yards. Um, and that's pretty normal. Um, and then we gave her uh, an AR-15 style platform. And I watched both to my pride and horror <laughs> as my mother, you know, put it put a fist sized grouping of lead, uh, you know, in center target from 50 feet away. Mm. Um, and that really fundamentally is the difference um, when we're talking about, quote unquote, assault weapons. Um, it's actually the characteristics that make it easier for people like my mom to handle firearms under pressure, um, because if she's ever in a life or death situation and, and God forbid she is, I hope for everyone's sake she doesn't have a handgun. I, I hope she has some sort of rifle that she feels confident with. It really is a great equalizer. Uh, it is, uh, for, especially for people who can't, might not be able to physically defend themselves. Um, one more thing, for, uh, a little bit off of your testimony from the other day. There was a ruling in, in a court uh, that I think came out yesterday or over, uh, maybe it was Friday uh, about bump stocks and, and President Trump's um, banning of bump stocks. Uh, I, you know, I was, I thought at the time, you know, you can go through this and, and have arguments about it, but I thought the way it was done was quite clearly incorrect. Do you know, do, is that, are we going to see this go through the court system? How is this going to turn out? 
Well, so this is interesting um, because so basically what had happened um, and where this lawsuit comes from is, again, like you said, how the federal government, how the, the executive branch actually, and the, the ATF went about arbitrarily, unilaterally on its own, basically rewriting the definition of machine gun. Mm -hmm. um, so for a long time, people who had these bump stock devices um, actually had letters from the ATF essentially saying, this is not a machine gun, you are allowed to lawfully own this. Um, and then what the ATF did was uh, instead of you know, going through Congress, changing the definition, um, they basically said, well, we've changed our minds. This is actually a machine gun. And not only is it now a machine gun, but it has always been a machine gun. You have always been felons illegally possessing these. Please give them back. Um, now, that's not the way that our system of government works. Um, and so interestingly enough, this brings up not really even a Second Amendment issue as much as a separation of powers. You know, it's up for Congress to define what a machine gun is. Um, so, you know, it's hard because the Supreme Court has been hesitant to take up even very clear-cut Second Amendment cases. Um, so, I, you know, even though this would seem to be a very clear-cut uh, case of separation of powers and the ATF not having this authority, you know, we can't even get them to take up a carry case. So um, your guess is as good as mine as to where this ultimately goes. Uh, it's going to be interesting to watch. I mean, President Trump was good on some things with the Second Amendment, but that was, you know, I think really bad. And I'm very nervous as how the left is going to utilize this new created authority where you can just sort of change definitions yeah. on the fly. Does not seem to have good outcomes, I don't think. But uh, thank you so much. Amy Swear, expert on all things Second Amendment and legal fellow at Heritage Foundation. Thanks so much for coming on the program, Amy. I appreciate it. Thank you. All right, back in a second. So there's some good news on the vaccine front today. Uh, you know, look, you have a, a, a trial that goes through. You get good numbers out of it. It's encouraging. But, you know, you want to see what goes on in the real world. Some real world results being uh, reported by the CDC today on Moderna and Pfizer's uh, vaccine. Uh, the two-dose regimen prevented 90% of infections uh, by two weeks after the second shot. One dose, just one dose, 80% of infections uh, by two weeks after the vaccination. A um, couple of other kind of side issues they dealt with. One was whether vaccinated people can still get asymptomatic infections and transmit the uh, virus to others. Um, looks like no. That's not really happening at all, uh, or at least very, very rarely that is happening. Uh, also concerned that variants might be able to uh, to overpower the vaccine and get around the vaccine in various ways. Uh, they did a study that was between December 14th and March 13th of this year, and the vaccine still provided powerful protection. A lot of times because the media lies so much and does so much uh, spin that we kind of get into the, I think, the, the, the vibe as conservatives that they're just rolling out only information that's going to keep this thing going for longer. But, you know, they, these are the two big hangups they've been talking about. And uh, whether, you know, an asymptomatic person or, can, you know, some, someone can still be asymptomatic after getting the vaccination, maybe can still pass it. Uh, maybe variants can get around it. These sort of scary outlier possibilities. Well, the science is coming back really clearly here. That's not happening uh, in any noticeable numbers. And it's important to note how bad the approach has been by the media on this. Instead of highlighting these outlier possibilities that scientists didn't really think were happening, though they couldn't completely eliminate the possibility for, uh, for them. Uh, instead of promoting that, they should have been promoting, hey, you can get back to life a lot easier. I mean, you got a grandpa that hasn't seen your grandkids in a long time. You know, this can all happen again if the vaccination happens. Uh, so we are going very quickly. Uh, we're over 3 million vaccinations per day. 
uh, the, over the weekend, which is an incredible, incredible number. And by the way, we should point out the three most evil things in the world deserve a lot of credit for this. Capitalism, um, big pharma, mm -hmm, and uh, the Trump administration. Those are three things. Really, I mean, there's other things, too. They weren't alone. But those three groups never get any credit. Well, capitalism isn't really a group, more of a philosophy. But they never get any credit for this stuff, and they should in this circumstance. Um, to give you a sense as to how well this is working, after going through the entire study of the entire group, if you're fully vaccinated, uh, 0.04 per thousand got uh, the actual virus. 0.04 per thousand. If you had one shot, it was 0.19 per thousand. So if you only got one shot instead of two, you're about five times as likely to get the virus. However, if you got no vaccination at all, it was 1.38 per thousand, 34 times as likely. You know, this is working really, really well and it's developing well. Now, of course, you know, that doesn't mean we can't still screw this up. We totally can. And one of the ways we can screw this up is by trying to either mandate people get the vaccine so that people who really don't want to get it are forced to. That's going to cause people to recoil. They're not going to want to do that. This is America. They don't like people don't like when they get forced to do stuff. The other thing is this vaccine passport idea. And the vaccine passport idea is muddled. Okay, it's it's a lot of it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. At its worst, it's something like the government coming up with a, a plan in which you if you don't get the green pass, which is what they call it in Israel, the green pass. Uh, it's like an app and you have a green you have the green pass and you can go in and go wherever you want because you got the vaccine and that's coming through the government. And, you know, at its worst or at, at its best, you know, it could be just like a way to be able to if, if a law is passed that if you're vaccinated or had the virus, you can go do uh, special things. A, a private uh, organization might put something together that allows people uh, to easily communicate uh, the uh, the idea that they are OK. Right. Like, I don't have the virus. You know, I don't I can go where I need to go. This is could be valuable in situations such as nursing homes, for example. Um, if you want to go visit your relatives, um, uh, you know, a nursing home, you don't want you don't want to do an Andrew Cuomo. Right. You don't want people who are coming in with coronavirus into a nursing home because that could wipe out dozens of people if they're not vaccinated themselves. Uh, you know, I've been to uh, some of these facilities and a lot of them are vaccinated. I think we're at something like 70 percent of people over 65 now have at least had one shot. So we're well on the way to this. But there are some people, especially elderly people with certain health conditions that are unable to get vaccinated. So having uh, you don't want tons of people visiting that are not vaccinated. That's an understandable thing. If you happen to be a nursing home and and you want to make sure that your your internal population is protected from the outside world, it's a pretty sensible thing that I think most conservatives would understand. What's going on here, though, is uh, the push is for a much wider policy than that. Uh, you know, it's interesting how they're sort of promoting this. Uh, U.S. officials say they are grappling with an array of challenges to the vaccine passport, including data privacy and health care equity. The health care equity thing, I will say, pisses me off. OK, now the health care equity sounds wonderful, right? What the real thing has been this entire time is why does, and it's always, it always comes back to me, you should know that. It comes back to me and how I feel and how these things affect my life. Let's just say there's a heroic battle of one talk show host who happened to beat the coronavirus with no symptoms. And let's just say that that person now likely has very uh, significant immunity to such things and is very unlikely to get the virus or to pass it to somebody else. Well, shouldn't that person be able to go, I don't know, sit inside an IHOP or go to a concert or do kind of honestly whatever I want to do, including not wearing masks? I would argue the answer to that is yes. 
Does that make make me, uh, you know, unequal to someone who has been maybe more responsible and doesn't have the vi- didn't get the virus? You could argue that. Right. But when you when you make arguments of equity, they always have massive uh, unforeseen circumstances. For example, if you're a business owner, do you want the people who have been vaccinated and who uh, have had the virus back in your restaurants? I mean, at this point, a lot of places have opened and these these arguments are starting to recede a little bit. But, you know, the government is going to try to keep pushing these things. And one of the things they're worried about are uh, minority communities not getting uh, either access to the vaccine or not wanting to take it in high numbers. Um, They say uh, they want to make sure all Americans will be able to get credentials that prove they have been vaccinated, but also want to set up systems that are not easily hacked or passports that can be counterfeited, given that forgeries are already starting to appear. Look, this is going to be something they're going to struggle with. I get it. Um, and I can understand if you're a business and especially when you don't have immunity against people coming in here. You know, if you throw a concert, someone comes in, and gives everybody at the concert COVID. Are you going to get sued? You have no protection against that right now, uh, even though Republicans tried to pass that multiple times. That would have been a sensible thing for people to open up businesses. Business owners are a little skeptical about this. This is going to give them a layer of protection on that. Um, is it a good idea? I mean, I would argue no. I think people should go get the vaccine because I, you know, I, I'm a big fan of it. And I'm, I'm glad that this is uh, this is available as of today in Texas. It's available to everyone 16 and older. Uh, so it is available. And once it's available to everyone, once there's no longer a shortage, these rules get more and more inane and insane uh, and wrong. Um, CNN did some uh, vac- uh, did some uh, COVID stuff over the weekend. A couple of big interviews they had. Uh, Dr. Deborah Burks came out and she said, I look at it this way. The first time we had an excuse. Uh, there were about 100,000 deaths that came from that original surge. All the rest of them, in my mind, could have been mitigated with uh, or decreased substantially. Now, on one hand, this is obviously true, right? There is if there's no no repercussions to pay if you just take everything out except for health. Yes, in theory, we could all go into our own plastic bubbles and less people would have died. Of course, the entire economy would have shut down. Our way of life as we know it probably destroyed. But in theory, that was possible, right? That's why public health officials, uh, they're kind of like lawyers, right? You know, if you have ever tried to do something creative, um, we do in radio, it's, it, this gets hit all the time. If you have an idea for something that's pushing the envelope, and you go ask the attorneys about it, they always say no. What, what, why would they say yes, right? What's the, what's, the, what's the positive of saying yes? And that's what you get from Fauci all the time. You know, like, of course, you know, people criticize some of these comments from Fauci where he says, well, you know, if we would have acted differently, we would have saved people's lives. Well, of course, that's obviously true. I mean, if we shut down everything the entire time and no one did anything, we may have been able to save more lives from COVID. But what would the repercussions would have been? How many people would have died from other reasons? What would have happened to the economy? You have to take all of that into account if you're a leader. If you're just someone who's kind of having, you know, my job is a one track mind, there's value to that, but it does not make the decision for you. Also interesting that they blame sort of Trump here. That's been the spin on these Burks comments. Well, Burks uh, tried to stop people and Trump ignored her. Then on the next uh, story, also from uh, CNN, Dr. Fauci uh, talking about uh, when I saw what happened in New York City, almost overrunning our healthcare system, I was like, oh, my goodness. Fauci told CNN correspondent Dr. Sanjay Gupta on COVID war, the pandemic doctors speak out. And that's when it became very clear. The decision we made on January the 10th was to go all out and develop a vaccine. It may have been the best decision I've ever made with regard to an intervention as the director of the Institute. Now, look, 
there's no doubt that Fauci had a big role in developing the vaccine. That's been what he's been doing. But why does Trump get blamed for one thing here and he gets no credit for the other thing? Who was Fauci's boss? Right. Donald Trump was the one who kept Fauci uh, in that role. So Trump gets no credit for the vaccine and gets all the blame for the other stuff. I will also say Fauci's point here is, is very poor. Uh, he says, when I saw what happened in New York City, I was like, oh, my goodness. And that's what became what it, when it became clear that the decision we made on January 10th to go all out, uh, develop the vaccine may have been the best decision I've ever made. Look, I mean, I think everybody knows that you got to go all out. Of, and when you got a pandemic going on, um, you got to go all out. I guess he's saying he didn't realize he was right until then. But clearly that was well well after the vaccine program was already started. Uh, one last quick one. I know I'm running late here uh, with uh, Mexico. Go back and watch the show from like a March of last year. We did a show called COVID and the border. We did another update from it uh, through the year. What we talked about was Mexico's situation is going to get really bad. It's going to be a lot worse than it was reported. And it's going to eventually cause a ma major border crisis. Well, we got the border crisis. We know they haven't done anything. I mean, they have not been testing at all. They've been almost doing nothing in Mexico. Uh, what's interesting here, though, is they have now actually gone through the uh, excess death margin. This is a this is sort of a dark and dire thing, but it's something we've talked about and we need to keep you updated on it. Um, we've told you that Mexico City is the worst city in the world when it comes to uh, excess deaths that we know of. A lot of other cities have a pretty bad record keeping. Uh, but Mexico City's record keeping is at least moderately decent. Um, but what they found out now is there were 182,301 deaths in Mexico. They have now updated this. And this is not like some crazy thing where they're just like, oh, let's just add deaths. This is these were there the entire time. We told you they were there the other time. Uh, now, 294,287. So a 60% increase they just ticked up. And this is going to start happening all around the world. This is not an isolated incident. When they go through these numbers, they're going to find, as we've been saying for a very long time, the COVID numbers are going to be a lot higher than we think they are right now. That's why this vaccine is a miracle. Thank you, giant, dis disgustingly giant pharmaceutical companies. I love you. I know no one else does, but I do. Back in a second. All right, everybody, we're late in the third quarter. Deshaun Watson leads Andrew Cuomo 14 to 9. Yes, 14 accusers to 9 accusers. That's where we are right now. I don't know if it's actually a race, but they seem to be competing with each other. Uh, on the Cuomo thing today, this is a tough one, I'll be honest with you, because, uh, you look, Andrew Cuomo is awful. Dot com. But some of these accusers that have come forth you just can't put in the same category as as uh, the worst ones. I mean, there's been a few that have been obviously really bad sort of workplace issues. Some, I mean, at least one that was straight out of crime. Uh, some of these others have been, you know, I, I don't know how to ex ex express what this was exactly. It wasn't a good thing. The other thing about this particular one before we, uh, we can show you a photo here. Uh, but the other one part of this is it was it was tied to Gloria Allred. And honestly, it's, it's tough to take anything seriously that's tied to Gloria Allred. It's, it's just like to me, it's, it's, it's very difficult. There's certain people that just come out and say things and you can't possibly take them seriously. You know, um, I just you know, it's like if Bill Cosby came out with a vaccine, I'd be hard. I don't know. It just doesn't seem like I mean, maybe it's a great vaccine, but 
frankly. I mean, it did go to the vaccine one. I mean, Russia and China both came out with vaccines. Uh, yeah, you know, I'm the biggest vaccine guy in the world. I'm, I'm 100% on board with the, with the good old big pharmaceutical companies who came up with these. But eh, China and, and Russia, I think I'll skip those. I think I'll skip those. So it's tough to say here. Here's the picture. This is a, a picture of uh, Gloria Allred holding, holding a photo. We can zoom in here and show you a little bit of detail here. Um, you can see Cuomo kind of reaching in. He's got a, her, his hands cupped behind the back of, of, of a woman's head, pulling her closely. Uh, she does not seem to be into it, although it's kind of hard to see with a blurry picture. Her description of the incident basically was that um, Cuomo came up, had never met her before, grabbed her by the back of the head, pulled her in, kissed her on one cheek, kissed her on the other, sort of manhandled her in that process, said he kissed her in a way that felt very sexual. You know, it's definitely, he's trying to pull off the old, I'm Italian, I kiss both cheeks type of thing. At this point, just as an honest observer, and not a guy who happens to sell Andrew Cuomo's awful mugs, uh, but as an honest observer, it seems like Cuomo uses this, I'm Italian, I hug, I grab, I'm a, I'm a handsy sort of guy, we get together, it's Italian, that's an Italian culture. He uses that as a way to sort of, you know, do things he wouldn't normally be able to get away with. He seems to like to do this to women and sort of show them his power. At the same time, it is consistent with what some people uh, in the Italian community culturally do. I mean, particularly with people that, I mean, she even said, like, I'm Italian and my, my family does that sort of stuff. I don't want to get that from some dude I've never met before. So in some ways, I don't know that it adds that much to the story, although if a woman feels uh, that she's been uh, you know, abused in some way, she definitely has the right to come out and talk about that. And, and you know, if he did something uh, that goes over the line, he should be held accountable for it. On the other hand, I, I'd say the other, the other eight people, many of them in that grouping, already are, he's already been accused of, of much more serious things uh, than what we're seeing in this particular case. But of course, you know, as we pointed out at the beginning of this show, individual justice does matter. And uh, just because, you know, just because uh, it is uh, the, only the latest in a long series of allegations against Andrew Cuomo does not take away from the fact that uh, it, it matters. It also doesn't take away from the fact that thousands of people died in nursing homes, and that's a much bigger scandal than any of these accusations. And we should also point out that people who are mentally impaired have the same orders still in effect, and he has not repealed it. And yet that one still seems to go on. We'll give you more details of that coming up, but that's the latest in the Andrew Cuomo is awful.com saga. All right, if you made it this long on the show, you are a cool kid. Uh, and this is where the cool kids hang out, Cool Kids Club. Thanks so much for a lasting uh, click uh, like on the video and do all the things. Go to my Instagram page, at Studios America, has all the links. Should tell you that uh, brand new, we got the Anyone Else for Governor mugs, perfect for a Gavin Newsom recall. And the t-shirts are now in as well. Anyone Else for Governor, I think you'll like them very much. Uh, so go to studiosmerch.com and pick yourself up one. Before we go, story from Florida. Wow, Edith Riddle, 34. 34-year-old named Edith. Okay. She was arrested Thursday, according to uh, Jacksonville police arrest report. According to the police report, Riddle had just left the school with her daughter after meeting a vice prison, uh, principal about her eighth grader's hostile outburst at another student. Instead of leaving the campus after the meeting, Riddle's daughter went to the cafeteria to fight the other girl. Well, I was just kind of proving the point of the meeting. 
Uh, Riddle's daughter punched the other girl um, before Riddle, the mom, joined in throwing punches herself, according to the report. Riddle was wearing a boxing glove, singular, a boxing glove when she arrived at the school and told officials it was super glued to her wrist and she couldn't remove it. Despite all of the information given in this story, I have many more questions than I have answers. I love you, Florida.